welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative. Piecemeal covers topics related to eating disorders, body image, and how society may influence our thinking. Please use your discretion when listening and speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lampert. We have another recovery story for you today that we're really excited about. Sarah Jemenyak is here to share hers. Sarah is a Carolyn Costin Institute certified eating disorder recovery coach working in private practice as a coach since 2018, providing one-on-one recovery coaching to individuals worldwide. Before this, Sarah worked as an eating disorder dietitian until she realized that her true passion was in the coaching and counseling aspect of the work. Sarah has her own lived experience of an eating disorder and considers herself fully recovered from anorexia nervosa. She lives in Vancouver, Canada with her husband and their toddler son. It is so great to have you here today, Sarah. Thank you for joining. Thank you so much for having me. You are welcome. Well, we are in for a really rich conversation today. Let's just dive right in. Uh, Sarah, you speak about eating disorders from multiple perspectives, former dietitian, eating disorder coach, somebody with lived experience, recovered from an eating disorder. We're really grateful that you are in this field. And I really know that you'll draw from that array of experiences as we as we talk through this today. So maybe let's talk first about your lived experience. Give us a sense of what life was like for you when you developed your eating disorder and how it felt to have this illness. Looking back now, I feel like I've gained more and more insight into things in hindsight, even now continually reading parenting books um, that touch so much on attachment and temperament. Yeah, just realizing, yeah, missing pieces of the puzzle. So I see myself definitely as having like those typical temperamental traits that are so often um, found with eating disorders and restrictive eating disorders. And I think it was a combination of that, you know, very... um definitely a lot of separation anxiety from my mom. I couldn't, couldn't do sleepovers when I was little. I was the one who cleaned the house, like some typical things that you hear about in people's stories, which is always so interesting. Like I thought that was just me. And it's like these very common behaviors, some kind of like obsessive, like, you know, obsessively combing my hair until it was perfectly straight from very young age. So definitely those like kind of anxiety management type things going on. And then in a household where I think my parents just didn't really know how to maybe give me that emotional support too. I The way I see it now, looking back, I think maybe I didn't feel like that really strong sense of belonging at home, you know, mixed with the temperamental, obviously the biopsychosocial. And so I remember really transferring that onto peers and my whole sense of self-worth became very, very tied to my popularity at school. And this is like a young age, like preteen, which, you know, there's a lot going on for kids at that age. So it meant everything to me about how I was viewed by my peers. I was in a small private school with a very small class, so real like political hierarchy going on. And so it was quite intense. And so I, around the age of 12 or so, I felt like my kind of standing was slipping. I felt like, you know, I just, I felt very insecure at school and sense of self was so tied to that. It, it was a really tough time like I would come home and just basically in panic attack mode every day and I I didn't feel like I could talk to my parents about it I'd go in my room and slam the door and you know the eating disorder crept in I looking back I'm like where did I get that idea to use that as a coping strategy because it didn't come from the household my mom we didn't own a scale my mom never didn't even wear makeup like zero zero focus on appearance growing up so that's another kind of different stereotype there so some things were very stereotypical that 
less so maybe, but definitely got it from the culture. Because I remember reading a People magazine at a doctor's office when I was really little, and it was a focus on twins with anorexia. And I think something must have clicked. It wasn't conscious, but I know people and I think they might have, you know, the way they wrote about it or the way they focused on these two girls, something clicked for me. And all of a sudden I found that if I could tell myself that I was eating less and exercising more than my peers, all of a sudden I felt better about myself and I felt like I didn't rely on there. So looking at it from an attachment perspective now, um, I read this amazing book called Hold On To Your Kids. It's really beautiful for any parents out there. But he talks about the need for a really secure, that attachment with the parents and that attachment figure. And so looking back now, I think what I actually did was shift it. Like my parents weren't kind of the secure attachment figure I needed. So I shifted it onto my peers. They became the attachment figure whose approval I needed. But because that's inherently very unstable with other kids that age, the insecurity was too much and the shame and the self-worth stuff was too much. And I shifted it onto the eating disorder, I think. And the eating disorder kind of becomes that attachment figure. You hear about people calling it their best friend. I just remember it feeling like a huge relief. All that matters now is that I follow these rules, that I appease this inner you know, dogma checklist. And all of a sudden, anyone else's opinion didn't matter anymore. So it was pretty powerful. It took hold pretty fast. So that was around late 12, turning 13, kind of set in pretty fast and pretty strong. It makes a ton of sense, right? And I really appreciate your, your sort of, you know, hindsight perspective. Of course, we can see things ways that we couldn't see it connect then, or even we're trying to, but I really like how your story emphasizes the information we have now about temperament traits and the neurobiology of eating disorders and how some temperament traits just get so much more grabbed onto by those pieces like the the peer comparison and of course peers are notoriously unreliable sort of attachment figures in that sense because they are going through so much change and it's that that time of chaos i can see that path to well this makes sense because it's a shorter list of things it's always there it sort of meets that orderly more anxious more if I could just do it this way things would be better of course that made sense yeah I took to it so fast like it really did suit my temperament just having these list of rules that I was in control of Mm -hmm. yeah and I love your comment of like I didn't know that other kids weren't like that you know that that it just was the way that it was right I I have a funny story that, or I think it's funny. I don't know if anybody else does, but I realized that not everybody did. Uh, when I would get Christmas presents as a little kid, the next day I would line them up on my bed when my great aunts would come to our house and I'd have this like display of all my Christmas presents on my bed. And I just like thought every kid did that. And then I like, you know, later in college or wherever I was talking to people about that. And they're like, you did what? I'm like I would craft this display and it would take me, it was all in the right place. And they were like, that's kind of weird. I'm like, oh, maybe it's just my temperament. But it is those things we don't realize that other people don't really do. From that place, here you are, twelve-ish, and having this experience and having this internal uh, sort of adherence to this dogma and peers sort of changing all around you, and and having this experience in the world. How how did you find your path to recovery? What what support did you get? Uh, what was helpful or or also not helpful about that care? Tell us about that. So the eating disorder really set in when my parents were actually away traveling. And I think that was 
maybe part of also what triggered it right then. It was really stressful, especially with the separation anxiety with my mom. They, the two of them went traveling and left us for two weeks with close friends to babysit. I just... I became very restrictive, very, very fast. And the parent friend realized like I was kind of, I was noticeably becoming smaller quite quickly, like over the span of like, you know, two weeks at that age, you just kids have such high needs and everybody, you know, responds differently to decreased calories, but I didn't look well. So they emailed my parents in a bit of a, but my parents were coming home anyways, very quickly. So, you know, I, looking back, I had that privilege of being noticeably thin, which I think got people's attention really fast, especially at that age. So my parents took action really fast, which was wonderful. You know, I remember really acutely the ride, I think it was the ride back from picking them up from the airport. And my mom was like, what is going on? Like, why can't, why aren't you eating? What's happening? And I remember saying like, I want, part of me really wants to and can't I'm like really scared and I think I need help so like right away which is different than a lot of the clients I worked with there wasn't a real strong defending of the eating disorder there wasn't a huge honeymoon period like I was actually pretty aware of like whoa I'm kind of out I'm actually out of control here too I'm hungry I'm cold yes something's making it so I can't eat so I was actually very open to getting help so it was in weeks that I found myself actually in a hospital I was put inpatient quite quickly just to an unspecialized pediatric ward. From there, it was a pretty quick wait to get to like a day treatment program for adolescents. But I didn't like that one. I found it quite cold. I found everyone was really suspicious of me. I genuinely wanted help, but they were treating me as if I was hiding things and lying. And I just, I was such a little people pleaser. And like, you know, I, I just really, I couldn't, no one, I felt like no one liked me there. So my mom did tons of legwork and they got me into a, like a funded program in the province over in Canada, which is kind of rare to like, cause everything's funded in your province. So to get it paid for in a different province when there's stuff in your province was hard, but she somehow ended up talking to the right people. So I did inpatient for that summer, right before going into grade eight, stayed for about two and a half months and did, you know, some weight, you know, weight restoration, but I wanted to get back in time for school to start. So I kind of left a little bit before they wanted me to, but I really was genuine about my ability to do it on my own to continue but slowly relapsed as the school year progressed went back the next summer and then after that stayed outpatient but um really struggled with it it was the main part of my life throughout high school and then um continuing with outpatient support but yeah even into university there was a significant relapse in university so it was it was a rocky road. I, I often tell that to be like the journey to recovery and getting help started so fast. And even then it was, and even with a genuine desire to get better, it was, just, I think it was just so hard to find another coping strategy that worked for me as well as that did as much as it was a love hate relationship. And it caused me great misery. At the same time, I didn't really know how to cope in the world with my anxiety and my temperament uh, without it. So recovery was slow going, even though I did have a lot of support. Yeah. And, and of course, it's not like the culture changed just because you, you know, were getting help, right? You still had to be in this culture that had lots of messages about appearance and food and weight. It, it didn't feel like for me, it was necessarily about the praise because I wasn't getting praise anymore. 
I looked unwell, but still there was this definite sense that this is something that society values and praises. They tell you, you need help and they tell you that you don't look well and that you look sick, but really people are, you know, everyone wants to be as disciplined as you. So, you know, it, it definitely is part of it. Regardless, you pick up on what society values and yeah, strives for. Absolutely. And that fear of maybe you'll, even in getting well, maybe it'll go too far and you'll cross over some other imaginary line. It's, it is really difficult. It's really, how do you find the, how do you find what works for you to your point about how do you find other things that really work to support you and what you need to, to be the best you that you can be with the neurobiology and the traits that you have. Was there anything then later in your journey or, or, or in your journey at any point that was really helpful was sort of the piece that you realized had been missing or that you were able to find that was very helpful and you feeling like you turned some sort of corner or um, were able to get to a place you hadn't been able to get to before in your recovery? Yes, definitely. I can think of two kind of turning points on my journey and each one kind of took it like the next step deeper and kind of, I think it was kind of tied in with what I was ready for in that moment or what, you know, so the first one happened right at the end of high school. And it just came from a really strong desire to kind of have a fresh start in university. So it was more on that surface level. And looking back now, I'm like, oh, I actually think it was a lot of just wanting to be popular again and wanting that validation. I was so tired of being the girl with the eating disorder in high school. I wanted a fresh start. I was going away to university. So I really worked hard and I got, you know, I fully weight restored in at the end of high school and no one could tell from looking at me that there was anything going on. And so I really white knuckled it through a lot of symptom management in, in university, but slowly, yeah, I relapsed in third year. The body image piece was still really hard. I wasn't used to being in a fully weight restored body. And, and obviously I'm speaking this, I'm aware that not everyone has this experience of needing to, you know, weight restore as part of recovery and stuff. But for me, that was, that was the experience. It was hard, even though, you know, to everyone else, I was still small to me. It was, it just didn't fit with my rules and what I was used to for myself. So that was the motivation to get to the best place I had been up until that point. And I was doing well, I was maintaining my weight. I was highly functioning in university. So then roommates were dieting that summer for, for the summer. And, um, I felt like, you know what, I've been three years in university already. I'd maintained my weight. I'm like, you know what? I kind of convinced myself that I didn't really have the eating disorder anymore. And if they can diet to lose a few pounds, this is just rampant in our society. Why can't I too? What's so bad about wanting to look good in a bathing suit kind of thing. So I, for the first time in years, I let myself kind of consciously decrease calories a bit on it. And it caught fire pretty fast. And even then, as I was, I'm like, you know what, as soon as I hit this weight, it will be so easy to reverse it. I'm not like I used to be. And then I couldn't reverse it. And that's where I was like, oh, wow. So I sought my own help. I got, I got pretty scared by that, but just with outpatient support that scared me, that shook me up. I didn't know that that was still possible for me to get to that place again. So then I really started doing some deeper work. And yeah, I, I graduated university and I didn't, I changed my mind about what I wanted to do after that. So I kind I decided I want to go traveling by myself and do some volunteer work or something meaningful. And I'd been to India when I was little. My parents traveled to India. They do a meditation practice. So I decided I wanted to go there. 
So I went to India and it was a long, long story short, but um, ended up meeting my mom in India and going to an ashram with her. And I was really searching for something. I was really hoping that the traveling itself and the volunteering with like orphans in India, I felt like that would somehow touch me in a way that would change me, like transform me and help me let go of this fixation on how I looked and needing people to like me and these things that still felt so stifling and so controlling to me but it didn't I you know these little beautiful orphan children were looking up at me smiling and I remember being like like change change like this let this touch you let this transform you and it it just it didn't I was still me I was still trying to exercise at the orphanage it was terrible so um Anyway, there's something about starting to meditate that actually was quite transformative. The meditation my parents do is very focused on the heart and tuning into the heart. And that was such a, like an antidote to me in my head so much and just being so controlled by like these rigid rules and anxieties. So it actually was quite profound. And so that was a turning point, but I, again, I wanted it to be this like immediate transformation <laughs> and it it wasn't as like you know sudden recovery still it still took me some work to dig myself out of that um that relapse and what I think the relapse just highlighted about where I was at in general it wasn't just that relapse it was kind of the deeper work I needed to do but that was a big turning point and it was from there that I really found myself into a lot of yeah I maintained my meditation practice when I got back lots of reading on self-compassion and different spirituality books. I love Tara Brack. I just found all these like really lovely kind of Eastern philosophies that were a really nice kind of a way, kind of that coping strategy for my temperament. I think that I'd been looking for right? like a way of feeling safe and self-accepting and stuff without the rigid rules. So yeah, yeah. Really it's very soothing in a way that you hadn't found before in a beautiful way yeah the self-acceptance the self-compassion work yeah the buddhist kind of philosophy yeah it was really help really healing and i imagine that sort of you know did that did that bridge into then the next chapter of so so then like tell us the next chapter in the story so then what happened how did that bridge into into these other beautiful areas that you discovered in life being a dietitian and then later being a coach like how did how did we get from where we are now in the story to that piece tell us that part of the story so during university or during high school and university I always thought I wanted to be a doctor I think I really liked the prestige of it I was good at sciences I loved I love science it was just very clear and easy for me but it was during university that I especially noticed the perfectionism around the schoolwork and the kind of obsessiveness around the grades. And I think just intuitively, very wisely, I knew that a life in medicine would be very overwhelming with my perfectionistic tendency. I, I wouldn't have been able to manage the stress without burning myself out, I think. That was a total change. So I didn't know what I wanted to do anymore. And that's when I went to India. I didn't know, but I had the science degree. I wanted to be, then I decided maybe I wanted to be a psychologist because, you know, all my experience with therapists and I did love working with people. I volunteered on crisis hotlines and at the sexual assault support center during university. And I really loved helping other people, but couldn't fathom redoing my undergrad degree in psychology. I'm like, oh, I just, I can't commit to that right now. 
so um that's where I, I decided, yeah, that's where I started thinking about dietetics. I'm like, you know what? I could work with pe women with eating disorders. That was already an idea. I'm like, you know what? I, I'm not a therapist, but I could do kind of, you know, some deeper work. I never wanted to be a clinical dietitian. I wanted to work with people with their relationships with food. It wasn't, you know, I was still struggling with mine a little bit, but I was, I was doing better. So I took the year off, then applied to different schools for the dietetics program and got in and the eating disorder was in a really, really good place at that point. And honestly, I mean, I was so aware of the, eating. there was no way I was going to pass on any disordered thoughts to anyone else. Like I, if anything, I was like way more anti diet, anti anything than um, anyone else in the program. <laughs> yeah. And I was a little nervous, you know, is this going to trigger me to work with women with this? But I took on some practice clients during internship, just who were struggling with eating disorders in the general hospital I was at and no found I connected really well with them. Didn't trigger me at all. So yeah, so I ended up working in that field just for a few years. And then I was in a small hospital. I wasn't in an eating disorder program. It was an outpatient program that had an eating disorder component to it, but just on an outpatient basis. But the role was a lot. I was kind of a jack of all trades. It was a small hospital in a small town, really under-resourced. Ended up, yeah, just not, just being a little bit disillusioned with the role and with the work. It was very much just meal planning, not as much of the emotional support I wanted to provide to people. So that's when I heard about Carolyn's program, kind of serendipitously, it ended up, part. it was like the bottom part of a newsletter that I had, it just mentioned this thing. I was like, what is this? So I looked into it and yeah, so that, that felt like a really, really good fit. That's awesome to see, to just yeah. the right message at the right time in the right place for you. Yeah, totally. Yes. yes. Fantastic. So for those that might be less familiar, what does an eating disorder coach do? Tell us a little bit about that coaching training. And then how do the question we often get is like, well, how are coaches different from a therapist or different than a dietitian when coaches are working in some of the same areas? So tell us a little bit about either eating disorder coaching and what that looks like. Well, the thing I love about it is just how flexible it is. I feel like I take on kind of different roles for each client, depending on what they what they need. But the main distinguishing things are that it's very much focused on the here and now work. You know, clients will share so much of what they might share with their therapist. And sometimes they'll recap the same things to me in a session, but I won't delve into it. And I'll encourage them to talk to their therapist about it, but I'll bring it back to like kind of the here and now. What can we do like in terms of your daily behaviors, daily coping, how can I be that piece of it for you? With the dietetics piece, like they'll have their meal plan, they'll talk about like their food specific questions with the dietitian, their needs, their meal plan, and they might come up with like goals with the dietitian and I'll help them implement that. So then we'll look at like, how is it grocery shopping? What fears are coming up for you? Just kind of supporting the work of the therapist and dietitian in the here and now lots of texting in between sessions that's something that they that's often really appreciated that they don't get to do so much with their the therapist and dietitian often i'm the only one on the team with the lived experience and that itself is huge to people yeah they just find i it's just a different kind of relationship with me that's awesome they get to practice with you they get to, to learn skills from other places and practice them in real life settings with you and be there with your support. Um, what about the, the, I'm really curious about the more sort of uh, spiritual or, or relational parts, uh, you know, given your experience with meditation and that experience you had of really finding self-compassion and having that be meaningful to you. Um, 
how do you do you try to in, incorporate that piece into your work with people as a coach that that healing and rebuilding you did with yourself how do you incorporate that into your work with clients when you're working with them as a coach that's a really good question because that's something I was curious how it would play out in this role as well and you know it's what I find is that it helps me in a more indirect way like I find when I the way I view clients and their journeys just takes such a positive lens like I do like I I love Carolyn's approach with this like the um she calls it like the healthy self, kind of it's a healthy self versus the eating disorder self. And to me, healthy, healthy self, I sometimes don't use that terminology. I'll use wise mind more. Clients are very familiar with wise mind and soul self, Carolyn also uses. And I love those. So I feel, feel like that distinction for people comes very naturally to me based because I do see that being my own journey. And so a lot of my clients are not spiritual. Some are not even necessarily open to it. And I'm not going to push any ideas and just because it worked for me doesn't but I do think that they do resonate with like the healthy self or wise mind self versus the eating disorder self so I just bring that into the conversation as much as possible and kind of take like as much of a strengths-based approach as I can like just kind of seeing everything as like part of their journey just always just looking at it as that like just evolution of their journey kind of so I feel like the spiritual view kind of comes almost like as a meta part of the work, but I'm not necessarily working on it directly with them because some of them are not quite there. They don't even know what wise mind is. They don't, you know, like, but I'll try to tease it out for them and try to point out instances where, you know, that is kind of wise mind. How can we strengthen that part of that voice? What can we do? So that's something I really do try to work on with people. Like how can they connect to that part of themselves throughout the day? using whatever terminology they they use and might not be tied to any spiritual base, but they know it's like their authentic kind of selves. Beautiful illustration of really, the, you know, meeting someone where they are and and what is meaningful to them. That maybe for some person, it's meditation might be meaningful or some, it might be journaling helps them to really connect with their true self or a mindful walk or a music or bird watching, whatever it is that's important to, to each person that helps them to connect to, to themselves or to, to may, maybe connect outward. So it sounds like you're able to really spend time with people and meet them where they are and help them to develop those skills. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly how it feels good in, in a session. doesn't feel good if I'm trying to tell them what worked for me and they're going to get shut down. Yeah, get, yeah, yeah. It's true. I think there's so, there's so many people now in the field that have a lived experience and it's a, it's a Thing to have more people in this field and to have it be open. I mean, I certainly, when I started in this field a, a, a long time ago, it was not nearly as open about having a lived experience. So it's, it's a lovely evolution that we've come to in the field where we really value that lived experience in our professionals as well as in our in our clients. I, I do think it it really challenges us all to, to really define for ourselves and to, or to know for ourselves, you know, what is that relationship with ourself? that works well for us. It's different for everybody. Everybody might define it differently, whether it's whole or connected or healthy or whatever word makes sense, wise mind. What does that like, connected relationship with yourself mean to you? Maybe if it's helpful, how does how does the relationship you have with your, your own self now compare to the relationship you had with yourself during the eating disorder? What's, what's different? Oh, that's a beautiful question. I feel like the biggest 
differences are just I feel less run by fear <laughs> that's a huge huge difference even in my earliest stays at the treatment center I don't know this thing came to me and I journaled a lot about it and I felt like it was this internal battle between I remember like using these terms it was like the fear in my head versus like the love in my heart and I think I might have got that a bit from my parents meditation practice that they sometimes read me like things from but um that really resonated and so that is exactly what the shift felt like over time and how things feel now like just less you know aware of my thoughts I still have the same temperament I can still be quite hard on myself you know it's not a perfect flip in like away from that but way more time coming from a place that feels like yeah more heart-based living gentler with myself my thoughts are kinder just not coming from a place of yeah this need to do xyz to feel good about myself so just this more general sense of being okay yeah I love that that sort of more more love in the heart, less fear from the head. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's hard to, it took time to get there. Yeah, it's hard work. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a, it's, it's doesn't take much time to say it, but it sure takes to get there, doesn't it? <laughs> and, and the journey that, that takes a while. Yeah. What about, uh, so, you know, we, you're raising a son, right. right? What are your hopes for him when it comes to his relationship with himself? And, and with food, with body, with mental health, and his temperament, whatever that may be, what are your hopes for him? Yeah, we spent a lot of time reflecting on this before he was born even. You know, my biggest hope for him is just that he feels comfortable and loved for just who he is, whatever, whatever that is, and just kind of has this internal, like, feeling of just being okay. Like, I know we'll only be one influence in his life and you know but but I do feel like these first years are so um key to kind of this blueprint and this kind of internal just like feeling you bring into your life even if you don't remember those first three years so we're just trying to just unconditionally love him and validate him and just take delight in him as much as possible just knowing that he's going to carry that feeling with him and same thing around food and body like whatever he just to, I think self-trust is a big thing especially around food like trust himself if he wants to eat that then that's what he's meant to eat like that's and so just really trusting him with food but those are my hopes for him and I hope to get as close to that ideal as possible that's beautiful absolutely I mean what a gift to, to help him stay connected to him to have him stay connected to himself uh, his, his whole life he can do that and to be there to help him do that and show him how and help him find his way back it's, it's a beautiful thing and what a gift to have that that underlying drumbeat of connection to self really is a beautiful gift to give him one last question we ask everybody this question almost everybody who's on the podcast but certainly everybody who's had a lived experience and you may resonate with this that oftentimes when people are in in the eating disorder are, are really struggling or even just a little struggling um, and they hear somebody with a recovery story who is recovered and is well and is, is doing well, they might think like, yeah, that's great. That's fine and well for you, Sarah. That's fantastic. I'm so glad that worked for you, but that's never going to happen for me. What would you say to that person? My biggest thing lately, and I've been talking a lot about this with clients too, is really also that they get to 
decide or they need to decide kind of what their version of recovery looks like like it's such I find it such a balance because you know I'm all about maintaining hope that full recovery is possible and you know this but there can I found in conversations with clients there's a dark side to that too where they feel a lot of shame and fear if they don't reach that finish line in their minds or there's this fear that if I stay in quasi recovery there's this like you know there's all these terms that kind of scare them or that they feel like they haven't they're not it's just another piece for the perfectionism to kind of own and to feel bad about themselves so I think you know focus on quality of life one step at a time I think I there's it's a balance of not wanting to you know for the eating disorder to grasp on and say see it's okay if some behaviors linger it's just it's a real like nuanced thing right but also to not beat yourself up if there are some lingering behaviors that are sticking around longer than you wanted recovery can happen kind of organically like can take it one layer at a time like you know if this is the level you're ready to get to now that's wonderful and you know focus on maintaining that place as long as you can and then I find organically you kind of get ready for the next step of what you're ready to let go of yeah. So I guess in a nutshell, it really is that thing of it not being a linear journey um, and that it looks, you know, all these cliches, it's not a linear journey. It looks different for everyone. But really, I found that over time, that is so true. Sometimes people need that as a reminder, because I did a lot of comparison with my journey with other people's journeys when I was on the path to and a lot of like, oh, what am I doing wrong? I didn't have this light bulb moment that so-and-so had, or how can they only need their one treatment stay? Why am I needing to go back kind of thing? Just everyone's journey really is so different. And, and even if you don't, if your recovered doesn't look like someone else's recovered, like our, how's your quality of life, you know, and just kind of focus on that and less on what maybe it looks like to an outsider. Mm-hmm. That, that makes a ton of sense, less on the, the definition and more on the connection. Yeah, yeah, um, totally. Well, thank you, Sarah, so much for sharing your story and for spending time with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. If you've enjoyed today's episode of Piecemeal, please subscribe, rate, or review. I leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Learn more about us at emilyprogram.com and veritascollaborative.com or search Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative on social media. Piecemeal is produced by Annie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Porky. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening.